Nintendo Audio. If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on Amazon.com and Audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. Order it by visiting Audible or Amazon. To find out more, check out FilmmakingConfidential.com and SteveBalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. Each week, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Today, we're talking to Rennie Grames and Boston McConaughey, the team behind the new film, Alien Country. With a background in filmmaking and next-generation VR storytelling, Boston and Rennie have over 30 million views on their sci-fi action YouTube series and have created short films online for Sony Pictures, Google, Coca-Cola, Nokia, and more. Does Everly know about this? Yes, yes, she was there when it happened. When what happened exactly? I may have opened a portal to another planet. Run! Are you hitchhiking? Nope, I'm pregnant. Alien Country is this feature film. It's actually the first feature film we produced together and directed together. Rennie and myself are married, but we uh, we are transplants to the state of Utah. And there's a there's a lot of really interesting culture that I found moving out here for college uh, between demolition derbies and you know rock climbing and canyoneering and sort of this like desert culture, um, as well as alien conspiracy culture that's just sort of is prevalent here and. You know, I, I'm one of these people that when I come to a new place, I just want to learn everything. I want to be part of the community. And of course, we've been here now. We, we, we've gone back and forth to California and, and, and bought a home here in Utah, but ultimately wanted to tell a story that talks about, you know, the, uh, the Southwest American, you know, culture and, and sort of what, all the different pieces of it. And even in po- the political atmosphere now, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things happening you know, between land use rights um, and, you know, indigenous people being marginalized. And, and so all of these things were just fascinating things that I, uh, uh, parts of Utah and American culture that um, I just think there's so many interesting things to talk about. And so naturally that turned into a story. If we were to tell a story that captivated the Southwest American desert in modern days, what would it be? And so we started to think of all these different stories and eventually, um, Rennie, Rennie and I work, work as freelancers and I had, a, I had an opportunity to do an interview with Stan Lee and I was in the process of writing this script and it was all about desert culture and rock climbing and blah, blah, blah. And, and he had said to me the coolest bit of advice and he was just like, look, you always want to write a story that you would enjoy reading. And so I said, oh, okay, well now I know what to do with my script. I'm going to add aliens. Um, <laughs> And so that, and it was funny at the same time that we were doing that, we, I, I was shooting a short film for a friend and, and I met this lady at this gas station and she started telling all these alien conspiracy stories. And so we, we ba- basically took this love romance story and, and wrote it together, rewrote it over a number of years, but um, ultimately wanted to tell a story that just was about all the things about Utah culture and, and what we love. So that's what alien country, that's, that's the origin story of, of where alien country came from. It came from the desert and outer space. 
and outer space. <laughs> and uh, I'll add to that. When we first started dating, this is probably 10 years ago now, we, um, the movie wasn't written yet. We did a table read of just a scene. It was like, I don't know, maybe it was more than just a scene. It was like uh, 26 pages or something. And we did this table read and it was a very different concept, a very different script back then, but everybody was laughing so hard. And I remember thinking in this moment, wow, this is really special. And we just, over the years, we have been, you know, trying to make a living as artists and filmmakers, but every couple of years we just come back to, we got to rewrite Shotgun Jimmy, which is what it was originally called. And then it turned into Alien Country. And then it was like, okay, when are we getting serious about this? We just had to simplify. And when we first had it broken down, it was easily, they were, you know, the guy we were working with was like, this is a $5 million budget and that's low budget. And we're like, well, we're probably going to need to do more low budget than that. And then we, we cut and we cut and we sliced and we took things out and we had it broken down again. And we had someone break it down for 1.7 million and then 1.2. And then finally we're like, okay, if we're actually going to get this movie made, how can we trim it down even more? And we just kept slicing characters, slicing locations, improving the story, just going deeper into the character and less about the, the, um, you know, the spectacle of the story and the, and the visual, what would be visual effects maybe. And we, we just simplified and eventually got this movie to be a $500,000 movie. So. Yeah. I think step, step one, you know, that Rennie's sort of describing is this process of you just write from the heart, right? You were writing just the, the movie that we would love to watch, right? That Stanley idea. Um, and it's the, what, what, what would be the, the movie in its perfect form? And of course, like she says, Stranger Things season one in one movie, you know, it's like that was kind of a, a similar vibe or, but that, that meant there was a lot of expense. And then we had to be realistic about, um, I like to think there's, there's kind of three categories. If you want to make a film career, you have to figure out, you know, what are the stories you have the ability to tell? in terms of your finances, in terms of your, you know, actual, um, you know, technical abilities. So what are the stories you can tell? And then what are the stories people want to buy, you know, or want to watch? And then ultimately, what do you enjoy? And when it comes to a feature film, you really have to enjoy the concept. So we had to constantly figure out what can we actually afford that we would love that people want. And, um, and so that kept that cycled for years. That was, it was years of writing and years of rewriting. And, uh, and one of the big things was cutting down, you know, the scope, bring that scope down to something realistic. So there's a romance at the heart of our story, right? I, I have this sort of funny adage that, that I've said to Rennie a bunch of times, and it's, I'm kind of sick of romantic comedies because it's always the same thing. It's like two idiots fall in love. And I'm like, yeah, any two amateurs can fall in love, but it takes a professional to stay in love, you know? And, and so I was like, well, what's the, what's the, but the reason that romance movies are so great is that they have this great formula of the meet cute, you know, the struggle, the misunderstanding, they come back together. And I was like, well, what's a, what's a meet cute for a couple that's been together their entire lives. You know, they grew up together in this small town and we're like, well, it's just forcing them. They have to, their relationship has to grow. And so it's, what's the next phase of, of a relationship? Well, maybe it's having a kid. So their meet cute in the beginning of the movie is they have an unplanned pregnancy. Right. And so, that became something we added to the story. But then as we're, as we're looking at, well, how, if that's the core of the story, if that's the most important thing, then the spectacle doesn't matter. How big this thing gets doesn't matter. Let's just boil it down to its most simple. This is a, a love story about a couple that needs to figure out how to get over their relationship challenges. And, and so that allowed us to bring that scope down, bring that money down, you know, the money to something that we could raise. If you were to, to break down how this film was made in one minute, 45 seconds of that minute would be make, made up of rewriting and fundraising. And then there's 15 seconds that's, mm. okay, then we shot it, we edited it, and we sent it out into the world. But yeah, the, the development process was pretty long to just try to figure out what can we afford? 
What do we love? What's the most important thing about this story? And how can we make that something people want to watch? Well, and you know, that could be a blessing. It just sort of, you know, hidden in there because if you had all the endless resources and you went and you did it the way that you initially planned, you might not have gotten to the core of the characters in the same way. Yeah, I, I actually remember I was talking to a friend who was talking about how M. Night Shyamalan had, has kind of had this rebirth of his new films. And for a while he had, had gotten this bad reputation of, of you know, making movies that were just, lo- you know, costing more and more money and making less and less money in the box office. And then apparently like, you know, he had to make this shift where he had, he decided, okay, with, with split, he put his own funds into it. And that meant that he was, you know, he, he put his own, like he wrote his own check and said, I'm going to put myself on the line. And on top of that, I'm not going to surround myself with a bunch of, you know, yes, men and women who are going to say, whatever, do whatever you want. And, and it kind of forces that creativity to a certain degree. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think that creating with limitations is often much more fun. Giant nod from me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't agree more. Um, so we're both classically trained in, in film and actually myself in theater, but you know, we graduated right after the recession, basically, and there were just so little jobs in the in the industry. And it was right when YouTube was exploding. So we have a very scrappy background of making YouTube videos with, with little to no money. Um, and we actually were able to grow a YouTube channel with this scrappy mentality in mind. And then um, we kind of have left YouTube, uh, not completely, but we've rebranded quite a bit on on our platform, on that platform and, you know, made a production company and gone into commercials or whatever. But we've really taken to heart, like, how can we be as scrappy as possible with this film and but still make it the quality that we want? And to be honest, we like this is probably the first time that we weren't as scrappy as we could have been like. Sure. We, like we brought some uh, team members to our to our team, like our director of photography, who just who just raised the bar on us. And he's like, no, in order to get this movie done, we need to, you know, bring X X Y Z to the table and make this movie. You know, we'll make it for a low budget, but we're going to make it look like it's a five million dollar film, which is what we hope to produce at the at the end of the day. You know what I mean? We're very used to a lot of restriction, and it's just been another step on our journey of like how much can we stretch ourselves and. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of those creatives who definitely works well with a prompt. You know, it's like, if you're just like make anything. And again, actually coming back to this, this kind of echoes the question you said earlier, but with this film, we tried to always have this sort of what's the core piece that we're trying to tell, right? What's the core little element. And for us, um, I think the word that trans transcended all of the stages of production was responsibility for this film. And it, our characters had to learn responsibility that was responsibility to each other in their relationship to their community and ultimately to the planet you know aliens evading they got to save it um but but that was also a metaphor for you know how we treat again i mentioned land use rights very simply there but it's like how do we actually treat the beautiful desert landscape that we have here in you know in this you know southwest america you know and and what's our responsibility to the future generations you know again there's that it all echoed back that responsibility but saying that no matter what we do, no matter what we try to do, if we have money, if we don't have money, that's all we have to focus on. Come back to this little writing prompt. And so, yeah, that, that kept us on that creative path and we're still there every day as we're editing the film, but it's been good. Amazing. Well, I think it looks like it costs 15 or $20 million. Well, thank you. Yeah, tell can, our, we, can we quote that? Tell the people who are going to buy <laughs> yes. it. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, yeah, I don't think I, I mean, I don't know you know, the rules, there aren't any, there are no rules, but I, my hunch is that you'll have no problem licensing it. Yeah. 
I, I hope- mean, even, you yeah. know, I, and early on, like my first film had not a name in it at all. Yeah. And, but we licensed it all over the globe. That's awesome. And my second movie had names in it. It licensed all over the globe. My fourth or fifth, I can't remember which one it was, had a bunch of names in it and it didn't get much licensing. Hmm. So I learned that like, you don't need a name in particular. You just need a good story and to have it well-crafted so that people are interested in it. Do you know what the difference was between those, your films? Um, I think it was either the presentation or like the one that didn't license as well that had names in it was black and white. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Interesting. And, but it was a, a satirical women in prison film. Yeah. yeah. So in theory, I would think that it would sell well because it's sort of, you know, this campy thing. I just thought, oh, well, that'll just license everywhere. And it didn't right. do so well. Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's, it's interesting because we are already talking to different people who can help us sell this movie. Right. And we have definitely had the gambit of different opinions of, do you need a name? Do you not need a name? And we actually filmed this movie on purpose with, um, with a couple pickup days in mind. We have two days yet to film where there's an entire character that we haven't filmed yet. And it was with the hope of we could present this trailer or a rough cut to a potential name and bring them on and, and film them. We, we also filmed in the middle of COVID. <laughs> so it was, you know, that presented some challenges and, and it just was not really on the table to reach out to names at, at the time. We had a hard enough time just attaching the actors that we were able to attach just because of the pandemic and all that good stuff. But it's been interesting because they we've had some feedback now that it's like, you don't need a name to sell this movie. And so we're really considering, like reconsidering how we move forward with this. We, we might still make some offers. We might still, you know, put some feelers out there, but we might just cast a really good actor and finish our film yeah, and I, see what happens. I think what, you know? you, what you're saying there with the story is, is so key because ultimately with or without significant clout and in a name's attachment, it's whatever you're doing, art is still a gamble, right? There's still going to be risk regardless. So you never- sure. Exactly. And I always say that no matter what you're making, eight times out of 10, people will love it, but there will always be the two that hate it, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Yeah. You know, yep. There are pockets of well-known, award-winning movie stars hmm. or TV stars who can't get work yeah, because the 10 people who always get the jobs. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and they're just as hungry to work as anybody else. And I would suggest why not get one? Yeah. You know, I mean, I love that, especially if it's somebody who's like kind of cool and that could just add a pizzazz to it that, you know, may not be the marquee name per se, but they might be an important piece of the puzzle overall. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've, we've thrown names around constantly of like, but there's just, there's lists of people that I'm like, you know, they're not like, I mean, they might be acting on TV or, or hear that, you know, but I, you're just like, well, I'd love to just work with them because they've got the right thing. They and and you know that they can do it, perform, and and it's not. It's more about the talent, and it's not about the oh, are they going to pack butts and seats? And I just don't. I, I you know, it's like again, I, I think I was lucky on this project where again, not casting names meant it doesn't matter. I don't have to think about is this person are they going to bring people to the project. It's more who is the best, most talented person I can afford, you know, and. And then we can just tell a better story that way. You know, I started to think about the idea of star power and what that really means. And, and ultimately, genre is, a, is a, a form of star power. We have a science fiction movie. It's action. Both of those are star power. It, there's a monster in it. The monster is the star of the, of the film. But then I started thinking the performance of the actors is just as much the star power. 
is the acting just good? And it's phenomenal. Like I being from a YouTube background, I know what I need. And so we hired the best actors we could find a lot of actors who wanted work during COVID and, and they just exceeded my expectations over and over again. So just having good performance is a, a certain type of star power in the genre. And then lastly, I mean, our cinema, our cinematographer, again, like Rennie was saying j- that with the look of the film is the star power as well. And so yeah. I, I think it just, it reevaluates as a, as an indie creator, like, what do I really need? And it's like focusing on what's really going to sell my story. What's really going to you know translate this story. And there's so many other pieces of the puzzle that need to be phenomenal for you to actually, and that you can afford that you can do as an indie creator. So uh, we tried to focus as much as we could in that direction. Well, and I've wondered too, with streaming services and having so much content these days, if people are less picky about watching a show or a movie with a name in it because we're watching things without name new you know no names all the time stranger things i mean it had winona Ryder in it but really it like there's so many shows out there that you're it just looks interesting from the cover art or the poster art or netflix recommends it or whatever it is and we end up watching it and loving it and it doesn't have necessarily star power in it so i feel like we're almost entering into this time of more forgiveness or less need for for this quote like names that bring the star power to the table although if you think about it this way you have star power i mean when i look at you in that movie and see you moving around i say oh she's a movie star and whether (laughs) i mean whether or not people know this yet you know it's like at some you look at anybody's career Mm. they were not always the name you know of today Right. And, you know, it's like, I hope the best for you in all this, you know, always, but like I, you have that charisma that few people have. So. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I think that this, this industry is, brings you to your knees a lot, you know, and it's very humbling. And I mean, we've spent several years um, pitching TV shows and even this movie, down in LA, you know, um, we had a, we had enough of an audience that we could get in the door with our YouTube channel. We had enough of a following and I, you know, I've been in, a, you know, I don't want to say a lot, but I've been in my fair share of indie movies, you know, so it's not like I'm nobody on IMDb, but it's just interesting how, when you walk in a door, you know, it's always with politeness that you get treated, at least in our experience. But, you know, when you're wanting to make your own content instead of maybe being fit into somebody else's project. It's a different story. You know, if you want a a studio or a network to take, for instance, we were pitching this TV show that um, we had such great feedback on from so many different production companies and studios and even got under contract at one point. And it was just, I don't want to say rejection and failure, but it's a lot of no's to lead to yeses, right? And and I think that we've just come from a place of we're gonna do what we're gonna do just because we like to make our art and we wanna we wanna share it with the world. Filmmakers Rennie Grames and Boston McConaughey. Another great filmmaking confidential guest is Polish actor Marek Probosz. When you create, you can get lost, you can hurt yourself. I don't know, you may trip, you may, but this is your wound. You owned that time and you will remember that. And as a result, you'll grow. You can hear my full interview with Marek at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with Rinnie Grames and Boston McConaughey. Stay with us.
I'm Steve Balderson, and this is the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. I'm back in alien country. Let's go back and talk to me a little bit about to make a studio movie that looks like it costs multi-million dollars for next to nothing in the middle of, you know, nowhere. <laughs> like, I love the idea that it, it, you know, you went to, you were working with some really talented people too, in this regard. So tell me a little bit about that process. Rennie and I run a school, Indie Film School, and we teach a lot of how to make films. But one thing I've just been wanting to put out there is, is what I'll say next, which is there's so many ways to make $1,000 look like a million dollars. One of those that I felt since I was a kid was locations, right? Like you're saying, we, we show up at a demolition derby and I literally called around to every demolition derby in Utah. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I, I can do event vi- videography for you guys if you let me use some of this footage in my movie. You know, and we started that. We did that once in 2015 to get the sizzle reel for this movie together. And, and I called them up like five, four years later saying, hey, you know, we used that. We pitched it around, yada, yada, yada. Um, we want to come back. And they're like, oh, well, we, told out, we tore down the entire arena and rebuilt it. So you can't use any of the footage from the previous time. But anyway, long story short is, you know, locations, right? We can use locations to make our movie look incredible. So we did that. We shot, we shot in 2019 at a demolition derby. Thank goodness we decided to shoot that early because there were no demolition derbies in 2020. So we got all the footage that we're going to put in our movie for a very low cost, you know, like less than $5,000 total to have a full stadium of, uh, you know, audience. And, you know, we put up signs. So everyone disclaimed that they knew that they were being filmed and that this footage would well, be used. And I'm going to insert that because we had posted footage from the, the previous demolition derby, we put a, you know, we sold a thousand tickets, like the day we posted on Facebook for the demolition derby, you know, like, so just like our little video that we created, put money in their pocket. Yeah. So they, know. so they were very helpful in, in letting us do that. And so that's one way, you know, the next way, like we're, we're saying is, uh, we have these monsters in our film and it's kind of this classic story that I hear a lot of people say is the scariest monsters are the monsters you don't see. I agree and disagree with that because um, the story of the, the mystery box that JJ Abrams, he did Ted talk years ago. It's like, Oh, if you'd never open the box, it's there's infinite possibilities. And I'm like, well, Pandora has to open her box at some point and release the monsters. But building up to that, it's like, we knew that that would save us an incredible amount of money. If we, we have these incredibly powerful monster shots in our film, but there's like five of them, like five big monster moments where you see the creature. And then the majority of the film, it's quick shot. It's quick cuts. It's fast shots. It's all this sort of stuff. And in, in lighting effects, yeah, all, effects. all that. And, and we actually designed our monsters to, they glow in the dark um, to distract or to help hunt is the idea. And so most of the monsters are seen just through like a lighting cue. It's a little lighting gag here, lighting gag there where a green light flashes on our actors and the audience knows the monsters there, but then there's no green light. Where's the monster? So, so there's all these little tips and tricks that we were kind of trying to figure out. And I think, you know, thinking about it in that way. um, Yeah. I don't know if it's answering the full question, but that was one route we definitely went. Well, we also built puppets. So, and when I say we, we collaborated with a very uh, talented team, uh, Salt City Effects, and they did an incredible job. And one of the, one of the things I found in this genre is that if you have a cool concept, people will get on board with it. And we just happened to share our script with people who the right people came on board because they were so excited about the script. And so the people who are making our monsters love our script. 
and they just, they're just like, they geek out on monsters, you know? In, in fact, like our buddy Logan, who built our monsters, um, he, he texted us today at just out of the blue. And he's like, you guys are so awesome. And like, we just like geek out on sci-fi stuff and, and monsters, you know? And I think that there are so many talented people out there, especially nowadays, you know, you don't have to hire some big wig Hollywood studio, you know, uh, art person to do your monsters because there's so many talented people out there who create amazing things, amazing art, amazing props, costumes, monsters, whatever it is, um, just because they love it, you know? And if we can, if you can tap into that passion, people will, they will just do whatever it takes to make their art sing. And that I really believe that's what's happening with our movie. Yeah. Both like with the practical monsters that we've made, the lighting effects that we got on, on, on set and the visual effects that are happening right now, they're just incredible. And I think that maybe comes to the final point that I would say for how we saved money on this film and made it look so much more expensive than it actually ended up being, but it's time, right? Time, quality, money, classic. Um, you know, the, you can only pick two, right. Is the, is the adage. And ultimately when it came down to it, we had time because we hadn't raised the money yet. So we spent that time, like Rennie's saying, finding those people, finding this artist who, you know, as he, uh, Logan Long, who's run Salt City Effects, he was working for this big studio here in in Utah where they're building Evermore Park. Well, the park eventually, um, you know, went under essentially and his creature studio got shut down. And so for a while he's like, well, what am I doing? And we reach out to him at the right time, but we built a relationship over time and finding those people, just just bringing them onto this project over years, and saying we're we're making this, we're going to make this, and and find, spending all the time to find our locations over years of traveling through through the state and and scouting, you know, on vacation. It was always we're on vacation. On we're also on a, trips, we're on also on a location trips. scout ultimately. Yeah. But I think that time is the best way to save money. You know, in the end, is is putting all that preparation. And again, when I talk about those creature designs, that light idea. You know, that was something we spent months and months and or years thinking about these concepts so that when we only have, you know, three and a half weeks of production, it's like, okay, we've, we've been thinking about this for three years. So of course we're going to, we're going to be able to efficiently make decisions and save time, you know, on the days that we're spending money. Because you did storyboards and you really thought through all this stuff and had like everything sort of orchestrated and choreographed because, you know, just to make sure that you've got all these things. Did you find that production itself was pretty smooth? Yeah, production. Well, I'll let Rennie talk about how smooth production was. <laughs> it was so smooth for me. I was directing. There's a and, lot of different things and I we was able talk to, about with production. I was able to focus. And if there were fires that were, ha- I actually said this to our to my AD, who was As- Aspen Andrews. She's uh, it was incredible. I was like, if there was, I felt like as a director, there weren't fires that I was putting out. Like I was, and there would be every once in a while there was a question. I'm like, wait, why don't we have? this prop or this thing. And they're like, we're working on it. Just give us another couple of minutes. But for me, it was incredibly smooth. And it's because we hired, we hired just really, really talented people, um, which was, I think partially we were lucky in that there wasn't a lot of work in 2020. So people were, you know, I don't want to say desperate, <laughs> but you know, people, hungry. people hungry were to hungry work. to work. Yeah. And, and we had a window where it was safe enough to do that. And, uh, and we were able to do it. So but yeah, production had, it has its challenges and I don't know how, how much you want to get into that, but, um, I, I did have a thought. One of the other ways we, uh, we were able to, to really utilize 
talent and save money was, was our, our first AD is a great example. She was extremely young and had only first AD'd one other project ever. She was 13. She was 13. I'm just kidding. Uh, Let's just say she was young and, but she killed it on our set and we interviewed her. We had actually tried to hire a couple of first ADs, but they just were like, I can't play for less than this amount of money. You know, it's just hard right now with COVID. And so And so we went through, we kind of went through the ringer and hired someone we'd never worked with before to run our entire set, which was kind of a risky thing. If you think about it, we put, we put our, the schedule in the hands of this, of this, um, up and comer. Yeah. She's an up and comer. She's, she's, and she killed it. She absolutely ran our set like a champ and did an incredible job. And we were shooting six to eight pages a day. Um, but also she was wanting the experience and she was, she was hungry for it. And when I look at her, She's young, she's hungry, but she's a leader already. And she's going to be a kick-ass UPM one day, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and anyway, so that's just a, a tidbit of thought, but yeah. And, and I think that, that those are the two, that, that was something that I, I actually, we stumbled upon that is such a great nugget of knowledge is that you find people who are hungry and haven't done it yet, but have the capacity. And if you can, if you can test that out, find that out and say, yeah, I think this person can do the job. They will totally rise to the occasion. And then the other side of that is, find those people who are established and, and one of, you know, the, the opposite end of the spectrum was there's this seasoned, um, our, our key grip was he's been in the industry here in Utah for oh, decades. 35 years. I mean, he, he tells know, stories about, um, he, he was hanging there. with Sigourney Weaver and yeah, you know, on, just on, like, like we went down to Goblin Valley and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I lit Galaxy Quest here, you yeah. know? And we're just <laughs> like, like, Oh, we cool. had helicopters, <laughs> you know? And we, we flew this stuff in and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and, but he was also like, what you're doing is so unique. You are outside of the box. Like pe- no one, is making movies like this. No one is making movies like this. They're all making safe choices. And, and, and at the end of the day, I started thinking it was, it's kind of incredible that production went as well as it was because we broke every rule that they kind of tell you not to break. We worked with kids. We worked with animals. We worked on remote locations. You know, we were, we were traveling in the middle of desert, no cell coverage for some of our, you know, for multiple days in an area. Yeah. And it was just like, there were, there were a lot of things that, that could have gone wrong. And, I don't, you know, luck is really when, you know, opportunity meets preparation and maybe we had done enough preparation that we, we did have enough opportunities to finish, finish what we finished on such a limited time scale. but yeah. Yeah. We do have some pickups to do. Um, but it, it wasn't because we weren't prepared. It was because of things like our, <laughs> our derby car wasn't working for, you know, an hour of the night we were shooting or, you know, we were in a location where literally we like, we did not have cell coverage and you don't realize how much you rely on your phone to communicate when you're, you know, a mile away and the walkie's not working. Right. And so it's like, we did end up wasting some time here and there. And, but, but, you know, now that we have our rough cut close to being finished, we will know exactly what we need to go get and pick up when we, when we do the rest of the pickup days. So we're not too worried about it. Yep. Do you want to tell people about sort of where you are in the overall part of the process now? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we shot three and a half weeks in October. Uh, well last week of September and then into October of 2020. Um, and right after we wrapped production, we went into post and basically just started editing and editing and editing. Um, we've put together a little uh, trailer that's going to be internal um, and then assembled our rough cut. So this Friday, we will have a fully assembled rough cut of the film. We had saved, like Rennie had said early in the in the podcast, we saved, the way we wrote the script was kind of very strategic, kind of very, uh, but no, it was strategic in that uh, we have a bunch of flashbacks that happen and the, the lead character's father 
um, is one of the characters that we haven't even cast yet, but we, we preserved all of the scenes that could contain that character could be shot as flashbacks any time of year. And so we took those, those, and we're planning on shooting them in late April or early May of this year, worldwide pandemics, uh, you know, allowing. allowing. Um, and so, so anyway, so we've, we've shot 95, 96% of our film. Rough cut will be done in a week. We'll get through that fine cut. And then by the time it's, it's April, we'll have, you know, essentially as close to a picture lock as possible. And ultimately the picture lock will change as we shoot those days and need to hit our target, you know, film length. But post-production visual effects has already begun. Uh, we've have our monsters modeled. They're being textured and rigged this week. And then we'll start throwing them into shots over the next couple of months. So all that fun stuff will be happening. So a lot of post-production. And then this summer we're, we're, we're projecting to, even with our pickup shots, be done uh, with the film by July. So we'll be ready to go to market. So it's by the time we went into hardcore pre-production to our final product, it's been about a, a year again, without preparing for three years before that, I don't know if we would have worked that fast, but yeah, it's taken a year to make the movie. And our philosophy has been this entire time really with our, with our, most of our career, but is just to share the process, share the journey, which is part of the reason why I reached out to you. And, um, and we want people to join us. And like, I mean, we, we met with a, a distributor yesterday who does theatrical releases and we're going to be talking with him and we're just, we're just exploring the options. And, and I shared a little, a little video on Facebook yesterday that was, or today that was just like a recap, like this is the, these are the things that we have to consider moving forward, you know, and theatrical really distribution is a very uh, up in the air thing right now, especially because of COVID, but that could work in our favor. And that those are the types of questions that we're exploring right now as we finish the film. So, yeah. I, and the one thing I would add to that is um, yeah. As, as, as we've kind of been going about the process I've also realized that the world has definitely changed in the way we consume content. Um, and in some ways, in some ways it hasn't, but not only do we want to talk about the actual final product, but I feel like the product that we're creating is the story of what we're creating. And so uh, what I mean by that is people want to see social media updates every day. They want to know where you are in the process. And that's something I think every filmmaker should really start to, well, I think we have to embrace is that, um, people want to know what you're making. They want to know how you're making it and they want to know why you're making it. And, and I think that's, you know, that's classic, uh, you know, advertising strategy, but ultimately, you know, our product alien country is a feature film, but it's also our social media alien country movie. You know, it's, it's everything that we're producing. It's the updates. It's the story. Um, it's the reason we set it in the desert. It's, you know, Bears Ears National Monument being downsized between two different, you know, being, being created by one presidential, you know, uh, whatever group that's in power and then being and downsized away. by the next, you know, and, and then what that means for locals who feel like they don't have any say in how our federal lands are being used in Utah. And so it's like, all of those things are the reason we're making the movie. So um, I think there's, there's just as many people who want to participate in that conversation who may also want to see the movie in the end. It sounds like you had a really tight crew, a small tight crew, which was exciting to see because I know Steve's worked that way. I worked with other directors that way. And it, it creates a family. Did you find that happen with your film that it became kind of a family situation? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not sure if it was partially because of, you know, that's just what happens over three and right. a half weeks or, you know, the pandemic and all, you know, all of the above. But we, 
I don't know, like a week and a half into this movie, we started shooting nights pretty intensely mm. and we started going to more and more remote locations. So we were like right. down in the, in these um, state parks and these national parks. And I mean, to the point where it's like, there was well, no national parks. Uh, yeah. Sorry. No, na- national, no parks, national parks, but some states it's very, very difficult to work with. No, 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 no talking about that. <laughs> well, no, we didn't officially. <laughs> no, we, no, we did not. Um, but we did, we, we did get permission to shoot in some state parks and, and, yeah. um, but like literally all there was to do was go ride an ATV or go on a hike on our day off. And we were able to just really hang out together and, and have a, have a lot of fun. It was, there, there was a magical day. So, so when I talk about canyoneering, it's a very unique thing to, um, there's only a few places in the world where you can do really intense canyoneering. Utah happens to be one of them, Utah, Arizona, this kind of uh, area. But what it is, is, is it's the rever- it's the inverse of, of mountaineering, right? Where you start at the top of a canyon and rappel down into the slots or, you know, and navigate your way through. Zion is one of the most incredible places to go. To I was going to ask, did you go to Zion or Bryce? Yeah, so we, so so near there in in uh, in Stateland, uh, there was but they they filmed the movie 127 Hours takes place in Blue John Canyon, which is in Canyonlands. Um, but uh, but they filmed something in, in Leprechaun Canyon, which uh, one of the scenes from that movie, and that happened to be the first canyon as a college student. I like went down with some friends and we rappelled into it and and hiked through it, and I was like, this is incredible, and it pretty much inspired me to want to tell a story here. And so I, I remember I was meeting with the, this, you know, with our AD and Rennie, and we're, we're sitting here talking about where are we going to film? And I was like, you know, I really always wanted to film in this Canyon, but you know, we, we, we had to find a, a more accessible location. And the craziest thing happened when we were on, when we were shooting. So this is worth telling, but we, we go down, we have a day between uh, we're, we're, we're remote, but we filmed, I think on a Friday, everybody had Saturday and Sunday off. And so on, on Saturday or Sunday, the crew ends up going hiking up this slot canyon, which is the first slot canyon I'd ever hiked in. I was like, yeah, let's go. It's only, it's only 45 minutes or a half an hour from base camp. Let's go. Let's all drive up there and just hike. And we drive up there and our cinematographer goes, there is no way we're filming anywhere else. We have to film here. <laughs> and this was like a fulfillment of this dream, but it was because we all as this family went up here and I was like, this is where the story idea came from was this canyon. And then the next thing you know, the, the like two days later we we got the rights we shot in that slot canyon for the for the actual day of the film and it totally made the film you know have that spectacular sense of grandeur that you feel just being in that space so yeah i, I know you said it took three years but obviously when it came together it all came together it just sounds so incredible we had like a that. lot of synchronicities on this yeah. film a lot of little miracles and i i'll, I'll even tell you one um uh, when did we shoot the first demolition derby? It was well, I guess it was the twenty nineteen. In well, the when we had anamorphics twenty nineteen. Oh, twenty nineteen. Yeah, we really wanted to shoot this film on anamorphic uh, lenses, and we had been doing some research and how much they cost, and we were just like, it's so expensive. How are we going to pull this off? You know, we rented some for uh, the demolition derby that we did the year prior. So in twenty nineteen, we did some. Um, anything that you see in our movie that has like the big crowds, we did that in the year before, basically. Um, and I just said one day in 2019, after that shoot, I was like, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we are going to, we are going to shoot this film on anamorphics and then we're going to get them at a killer deal. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> like, See, I love that. That's, well, that's it, was, it was, it was COVID, right? Like the, all yeah. these rental houses, they only, they're, they're rent, sitting on the shelf. They have so much money right. to rent these that only the big productions are doing them. All the big productions were stalled. And we were like, well, they're sitting on a shelf, you know, and we, 
it was our cinematographer hooked us up with a friend, his friend he knew from the rental company had hooked him up with a deal before. And he's like, you got to pitch him. You got to pitch him and see what they would offer in a discount. And it was, it was incredible. And I, so, so incredible that I don't even want to mention who it was and what the discount yeah, was. I mean, it was, it was just one know. of those little, little, you know, yeah. things. So COVID worked for you. It, Co- it, it did in some it ways. It did yeah. in some ways. And, and we were very lucky two days after we shot, I think even actually the day after we, we, we wrapped, we heard on the news that Utah went back into the red zone or that's whatever or orange or whatever, yeah, whatever it was that, that was the high risk alert. Um, so we had literally shot in about a, you know, there was about six weeks, three and a half of them where, you know, it was like we were in the yellow zone or something and it was just more safe to, to shoot. And we were really lucky. Filmmakers, Rennie Grames and Boston McConaughey of alien country. You can sign up for news alerts at aliencountrymovie.com and follow at Alien Country Movie on both Facebook and Instagram. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. Please remember to rate and review. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. If you have a question about filmmaking you'd like answered on the podcast, send me an email using the contact form on the website. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going. <laughs>